Thanks for listening to the Best of the Doug Gottlieb Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 12 to 3 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Doug Gottlieb Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. This is the best of the Doug Gottlieb Show on Fox Sports Radio. Boom! What up, America? Doug Gottlieb Show. Fox Sports Radio. The Doug Gottlieb Show is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Check out the latest lines from World of Sports at Bet Rivers Sportsbook. Bet Rivers is the trusted name in online sports betting. Got to be 21. Present in Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, or Pennsylvania to play. Hope you are having a spectacular day. Um, so Joe Judge gets fired. Brian Flores gets fired. Charlie Rice, who joins us on the show, he's been fired before. That obviously at the college game. Um, uh, you you look on his staff and his offensive coordinator, Josh McDaniels, was fired in Denver. We keep going, and only really Mike Vrabel has been a success story, but Vrabel appears to be different than the rest of the Belichick coaching tree. Vrabel also spent time in Houston on Bill O'Brien's staff. Bill O'Brien's been fired. He's a former Bill Belichick assistant as well. So, like, look, here's I've learned a lot, actually, with the help of some very, very successful friends. Okay, very successful friends. And um, I've I've learned a lot in regards to um, maybe I don't know, mistakes that I've made, but also places for growth and how to handle how to handle new jobs and new situations. And and look, we're all our formative years are who what what. What, there's a reason they're called formative years, right? Because that's where we're forming all of our opinions. That's where we're forming all of our thoughts, all of our well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And in business, your formative years are wherever, not just your first big break is, where you first start, but also a place where you were or the place was, in fact, successful. I, I can only bring up my own... Um, my own life and my own career, my own times, my own beliefs and thoughts and whatever, and explain to you that I, I worked for 10 years at ESPN, right? nine years in Connecticut, one year previous to that where I was doing a local show in Oklahoma City. So my formative years in local radio were in Oklahoma City at a place called The Sports Animal. My formative years... In sports television, we're at ESPN. The place was at its peak in terms of success, and I was somebody who bought into the culture. And what I've had to learn, and some of this is the hard way, and some of this is the the easy way, is that even though you come into a place and they actually think they want part of that culture, there's an assimilation process and there's a way to go about it, which is very, very, very tricky. I want you to think about this for, for, for a second, okay? Um, whatever you do in your life, imagine that somebody comes in and says, hey, most of the ways in which you're doing you, you do you, boo, are actually not the best ways. How would you feel about that? 
I think Eric Mangini actually did a very good job with the Jets. If you remember, they were 9-3 and three with Brett Favre, and then Favre tore his bicep, played through it, and it was a disaster. He was fired shortly thereafter. Of course, Mangini also got a shot with the Browns, but as we've seen, many have tried. No one has succeeded in making the Browns a consistent success. Right, Bill O'Brien, Matt Patricia, Brian Flores, Joe Judge, Romeo Cornell, who's still in the league with the Texans, wasn't successful as a head coach. And you could make the analogy in basketball, right? Go and look at the Duke coaching tree. Uh, Steve Wojciechowski had it going at Marquette. Then it fell apart quickly. He lost his gig. Chris Collins, Chris Collins was a longtime assistant, a former player at Duke. He's the first coach to take Northwestern to the NCAA tournament. But since that moment in his, I think, second year, it, 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 the Northwestern has regressed toward the mean. Tommy Emmerker has had some very successful years. He's the first Harvard coach to win an NCAA tournament game. But previous to that, there was failure at Michigan. I'm, uh, Johnny Dawkins is at Central Florida. They've had some limited success. And even though he's the coach at Stanford, and they had a, Stanford did was not the better from his tenure. So you start to point around, you're like, wow, why are Coach K assistants and Coach K assistants have lasted longer and been more productive than Bill Belichick's assistants are? Why are these spectacular coaches, historically great coaches? Like you can make an argument for John Wooden and for Bill Self or you or Roy Williams and and. And none of them would be wrong. But if I said Mike Krzyzewski is the most successful coach in modern college basketball history, you're not going to argue with that. We could make an argument about Chuck Noll, who won four Super Bowls. We can make an argument about Bill Walsh. Um, we can make an argument about Al Davis or whomever else in a coaching tree. If I'm going to say that Bill Belichick's the most successful professional coach of our lifetime it's pretty hard to disagree with, right? But think about it for a second. Bill Belichick's crew, much like Mike Krzyzewski's crew, hasn't been, there. there is no heir to that throne. There is no mini Belichick that's been able to be consistently successful. There's no fruit off that tree which is going to spawn another tree. And so why is that? And this is, again, kind of lessons that I've learned and you talk to people in the NFL, you know, talk to people in college basketball, and they all kind of say the same thing. The first part is that when all you know is how Belichick operates, you have to understand that's not the real world. Most franchises, okay, most franchises don't have an owner that has nothing to do and and. Robert Kraft does a great job of not being involved in most any of the football decisions. The, the Brady thing is the exception, and that's one of the ones that went bad. That's probably why he's so not involved in these decisions. But most owners, there's no, there's different levels of involvement. So you can't replicate the owner. You can't replicate that franchise's past. You can't replicate the setup that Belichick had when he got there, nor the fact that his team shortly therein was an outstanding team. They had a Hall of Fame caliber quarterback in Drew Bledsoe, 
and they frankly lucked out into Tom Brady and like the world just collided and everything happened at once and the Bills were down, the Dolphins were down, the Jets were down, the the, the Patriots were up. Plus, he was preceded um, at least on some level by Bill Belichick who had taken them to a Super Bowl and kind of established some of the culture. There's a book, I think it's called The First 90 Days and a dear friend of mine gave it to me two years into when I switched from ESPN to CBS. I'm like, man, why didn't you give this to me two years ago? He's like, you know, I was, I, I didn't know about the book until then. And the idea behind it is a good one in terms of business, which is it gives you tips along when you take a new job, steps you can to assimilate to their culture while if you're in a position of leadership, slowly invoking culture of your own. The problem with that is in the NFL, when you're the head coach, you're supposed to change the culture. And the only real you know, way in which you can see that being done is your time in New England. And so you copy what you see, much like all of us as parents, right? You ever, as a parent, you ever say like, man, I can't believe I sound like my dad. Why? Because the only thing you know is what you see and what you grow up, your formative years, You know, Cliff Kingsbury has been way more successful than anyone could have perceived. He spent some time in the NFL as a backup. He spent some time at Houston at Texas A&M. He, he, was, he was fine, but essentially he failed at Texas Tech before going to USC for a very short period of time, not coaching a game, and then getting the Arizona job. But you could make the case that his formative years in college were with Mike Leach, but because there were so many bumps in the road and because there wasn't outright success, even when he was in college or when he was in the NFL, that it's almost better to have learned from failure than learn from success. I mean, you had to let Joe judge go. You just did. I mean, I, the, the third and nine full house formation quarterback sneak. That was the, I mean, that was the, that was the Chuck Pagano fake punt of the New York giants. But the, the Giants wanted the culture of the Patriots. The Giants took the word of Bill Belichick that Judge could implore. And Joe Judge carried himself as if he was Bill Belichick, not realizing, one, there hadn't been a Parcells and any sort of culture already established. Two, you have a very different GM he was working with as opposed to Belichick. Three, Belichick had been a head coach in Cleveland and had likely learned from some of his mistakes. Four, Belichick then wasn't Belichick now. And the snapshot of what you think or how you think Belichick acted, you can't act when you first get to a place. The same is true with Flores. Brian Flores is guilty of being a, being a Patriot guy. Knowing that that way does in fact work. Knowing that Chris Greer, and I'm sure all those years spent in the time spent in New England, he probably looked at Miami and was like, this place is a joke. They don't know what they're doing. That Chris Greer, he's not a great evaluator of talent. He's the one who wanted Tua. I wanted Herbert. I should win all these arguments. And you know what? He's right. But let me let you in on another expression. You can be right and you can be out of a job. You can be right. And you can be out of a job. And that's what's happened to Flores. And that's what's happened to Judge. And that's what happened to Mangini. And that's what happened to Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien, 
wasn't wrong to trade DeAndre Hopkins. DeAndre Hopkins wouldn't practice during the week. DeAndre Hopkins has, had reached, by his estimation, close to the peak of his career, and he wanted to be paid like it. And O'Brien knew he had to pay Deshaun Watson. He had other, So he traded him. But again, he was right, but he's out of a job. Why? Because he hurt himself with the standing of his quarterback. He hurt himself with the fan base. He hurt himself with his handling of, of everything. He was right. He was out of a job. Matt Patricia knew he wanted to instill toughness and tenacity and completely change the culture of the Detroit Lions. Dan Campbell, okay, Dan Campbell doesn't come from that sort of, he, he doesn't come from a silver spoon success background. He was an interim head coach with the Dolphins, a former tight end, a guy who just brought great energy. But because of it, he didn't care. come in with the arrogance of, hey, this is the way, it's the only way, only way to make it work. I feel like the Mandalorian. This is the way, this is the way. Judge, Flores, Patricia, O'Brien, hell, Jim Schwartz, Josh McDaniels, Eric Mangini, Romeo Cornell. You walk in with the badge of honor of being a Patriot guy, knowing the Patriot way may, works. But you also have to factor in that the Patriot way works in New England because of how that thing is wired. And when you sit down at somebody else's TV and the wiring of their stereo is all screwed up, you still have to be able to turn it on and understand how it all works before you come in and slowly start to fix things. There's a reason they've all failed. It's not because they don't know football. It's not because the Patriot way doesn't work. It's because of their formative years gave them a snapshot of what they think the only way to be successful is. And that doesn't take into account all the context with how it was built and how it's been maintained in New England. It's not just Belichick. They were fortunate to, they had a quarterback for 20 years who would not, who would commit to taking a little bit less to sprinkling it around. No, no one else does that. They, they, no, no, nobody does that. If you can find a way to get that quarterback, none of them are doing what, what Brady has done. None of them. That was a, that honestly feels more and more like an outlier than anything else. Be sure to catch live editions of the Doug Gottlieb Show weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Doug Gottlieb Show here on Fox Sports Radio. There are certain things that people can say and <laughs> it, uh, it, make, it, it helps you know, it helps you know. I'll share that with you in a second. The Doug Gottlieb show is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Check out the latest lines from world of sports at Bet Rivers Sportsbook. Bet Rivers is the trusted name in online sports betting. Got to be 21. President in Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, or Pennsylvania to play gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Um, you ever, uh, my favorite class I've ever had, I wasn't nearly as good a student as I should have been. Okay. When I was at Notre Dame for a year, my first, was it first semester or second semester? I think it was the yeah, first semester. I was one of 12 students who got to take the only class that was taught by the president of the school. The president of the school at the time was uh, Father Malloy, Monk Malloy was what he was known by. 
Father Malloy was a former basketball player. He actually played in high school with the late, great John Thompson. And um, so he's a huge basketball fan. And that one class was an English class, like a freshman level, freshman studies English class. But it was like world English or world English discovery or something, something along those lines. And every Sunday you would meet in his boardroom. There were 11 other students. There's 12 advisors at Notre Dame. Everyone could pick one. And I was like, for the athletic advisor, I got to be in this class. I don't know how. I mean, I do know how, but it's not worth sharing it. But the point is, it was like the people you're with were amazing. Like the first class, you just go around and tell a little bit about your background. You're like, why am I here? <laughs> you know, you ever been in one of those meetings before? Um, and it wasn't a hard class. Like, I don't think anybody got below a B minus. I think that was me. You just had to write a one to two page paper every week, read one book that, that he would give you every week. And the books were from all over the world. And I, I remember... I remember how the class worked, which is basically you come in and it would just be kind of an open discussion. He would kind of lead you a little bit, but just an open discussion on the book and you kind of go around the room and people interject. But you know, when somebody gives a book report, you can tell if they've actually read the book, you know, and you had to be very careful. Like for me, I've never been a great reader, never been a fast reader. And here you're with all these brilliant people and you know, you you're swimming upstream in school. There were some times in which I might not have finished the book and you're trying to hide your lack of knowledge for certain parts of the book, right? But anyone who's ever been in a classroom setting, you know when somebody's giving a book report and they didn't actually read the book and you're like, Aha! that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That guy's full of crap, right? Okay. So there's a bunch of coaching searches out there and you know, for example, I thought, I mean, like Harbaugh to Jacksonville makes sense only in that they need a culture makeup. He's been great with young quarterbacks in the NFL, except Trent Balky is the GM. And to this point, doesn't feel like they're going to fire Trent Balky. Trent Balky and Harbaugh used to work together in San Francisco, but they had a major falling out. That's why Harbaugh was gone. And he went back to Michigan and became their head coach. Right. So. If you hear somebody saying Harbaugh to Jacksonville, you if, unless they say Trent Baalke, and I heard Cowher says Trent Baalke would have to be out first, it's it's a he doesn't know what he's talking about moment. Do you guys understand what I'm right? Anybody's been in a conversation with somebody when they say something that just like, wait, that person actually doesn't know what they're talking about. There's a former head coach that many people think should be a, a head coach that most people in the league worry about his health. His health. And if you hear them talking about, you're like, why wouldn't that guy be a coach? Like he seems really good. You know, there was a, it was Lane Kiffin to Miami or Lane Kiffin to, to other places. Like that one feels Lane Kiffin has straightened out most of the stuff going on in his life. But there were some things that before he got the old miss job that other coaches, when he was in down in Florida, was he, is it FIU, right? He was at FIU. You, you, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to get a couple of the other jobs, you know, and I've said this about some of the other younger coaching candidates, right? There's, there are guys in which there are jobs that you're not going to get. 
for the most part, you're going to get a job where um, you know somebody. Right? There's a connection there. You know? Andy Reid guys are going to hire Andy Reid guys. You know? That, that, that's how it, how it usually works. Belichick guys are going to hire Belichick guys. Are there some people, like, I know the Chargers, they don't really, Telesco, people thought he'd hire Brian Dayball because they went to the same high school. But I think Telesco was like a senior, he was a freshman. There's no real relationship there. So th- there's a way to, to discover if it's just a media creation, if it's just a fanboy, hey, I like this guy creation. Sometimes there's a way to find out if a guy does, hasn't read the book. And they just throw a name out there. Albert Breer joins us, senior NFL reporter at uh, the MMQB. Um, you, you heard the comments from John Mara. Like, this felt like one of those, he, he really believes that Judge can turn around, like, the culture of that place. But, man, there were just some, some things he said and did the last couple of weeks, which were, frankly, laughable. Not about fans, but people in the football community. And that's why he had to go. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Doug, he, um, you know, kind of walked himself out on the plank over the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I think part of that is, you know, an inexperience and maybe not fully understanding how much weight your words carry when you are a head coach. Um, You know, and and, uh, like I I think as recently as like the middle of last week, the Giants were, I mean, mostly um, decided on, okay, like we're, going to go forward with this um you know even though he had that 11 minute diatribe in the press conference and then you know i think the way the team just like no showed early in the game against washington you know there was obviously the situation with the sneaks um on third and long you know, i think all of it added up to and i think mara said it himself like can i see a viable scenario where um, where 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 Joe Judge is able to kind of dig himself out of this, and we can dig ourselves out of it around him, and maybe almost more importantly, can I sell a new general manager on that? And if I'm competing against Chicago, against Minnesota for general manager candidates, are we going to get the best guy here, um, or is Joe Judge's presence here and you know the fact that like the new GM comes in and they have to fire a coach after one year? Is that going to be an impediment towards us getting the best guy? And I think that sort of added up to Joe Judge being out where, you know, again, like I think even middle of last week, they never mind to keep him. And I think if you'd asked anybody high up in that organization, honestly, like three or four weeks ago, they would have said, you know, Joe's going to stay and he's actually going to have a hand in picking the next general manager. Man, that thing spun out of control in a hurry. Uh, okay, so – and, and of course, when you trade away, when you, when you fire a GM or he, sorry, he retires and the coach is gone, who's forever tied to the quarterback. That means the, the quarterback's very, very much in doubt. Um, right. Who's the quarterback of the Giants next year? I don't think we can answer that until we know who the GM and the coach are, you know, and even then I think it's sort of an evaluation. Now, the good news is Daniel Jones hasn't been an abject failure. Um, there, there have been things there where you look at him and you say, okay, Maybe you can work with this and this and this. And so, you know, I think at the very least what Daniel Jones represents for the next coach is, like, he gives you some flexibility going forward um, in that, like, maybe you don't have to overreach for a quarterback in the draft or 
if you're if you like but don't love the idea of trading for Russell Wilson, you don't necessarily have to do that. In a way, like, and I I don't know whether or not they're going to exercise his option for 2023. That's a decision they got to make between now and the beginning of May. Um, he gives you a year or two of flexibility where. You know, maybe he becomes more than he's been, but at the very least, you can probably tread water with him for now. And you're not married to him to begin with, so, you know, if you want to get rid of him now, that's an option, too. So I just think, like, Daniel Jones being, you know, who he is and what he's been over the first three years of, the, of his career sort of sets up the next GM and coach to sort of use him as a piece to, to, to stay flexible, sort of stay loose the quarterback position. Uh, the the coach and the general manager both came out at least outwardly in support of Baker Mayfield. Does that have yeah. anything to do with? I mean, is is that just you know, I, I, you know, is that just a crushing him or leaving any sort of doubt? You know, kills any trade value or the chance that he does come back if they can't move him or they can't get the right guy? Or is that legitimately how they feel? I mean, I I, I didn't think he's a good player. I don't know if they think he's worth paying $40 million for. And really, like, that's the operative question here. Because, you know, the way these things work, if you draft in the first round, you know, four or five years later, what ends up happening is it becomes a yes or no question for your team. And, and, and the superstars have signed after three. You know, like, so Josh Allen, he got his contract after three years. Um, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, they got their contracts after three years. Even Jared Goff and Carson Wentz who wound up being not long for where they were at, both those guys got contracts after three years. So, you know, typically the way this has gone is it gets awkward if you go into a fourth year without a guy signed um, to a long-term deal where, you know, I think it implicitly says you've got some doubts on him. Um, almost never do you go into a fifth-year option with a guy unsigned. And so I think the Browns are aware that this has potential to get awkward the way that it got awkward for the two guys who have gone there, and that's Marcus Mariota, in Tennessee and Jameis Winston in Tampa. Um, you know, I think they're well aware of the fact that, you know, that this has potential to be a very delicate situation over the next year. And so if there's even the possibility they bring him back, they have to be very careful about the way they handle it. Um, does that mean they're not going to look for an upgrade or they wouldn't be up, open for an upgrade? I don't think that's the case. Um, but I think they, they want to leave open the possibility that, you know, like Baker Mayfield could be their quarterback next year, because he's relatively affordable when you look at that position. He's got experience in the system, and you know he's, he, he dealt with an injury all year. Um, and I think if you want to create that possibility that he's back as your quarterback next year, you have to give lip service you know, to the idea that he is going to be that. You know? And so look, I think as much as anything else, it's about you know, sort of getting ahead of and, and smartly managing what could be you know, their, their fate for the next year, but doesn't necessarily have to be. Doug Gottlieb show here on Fox Sports Radio. That is the voice of Albert Breer, senior NFL reporter on the Monday morning quarterback. Brian Flores is a guy who, I mean, people in the league respect, fans like, players seem to, at least on some level, like. I don't know about players who played for him. There's obviously the Miami Herald story going back to, to, to yesterday. What, what do you think happens with Flores in this cycle? I think he's going to get looks from a lot of people. I do think he's got some questions to answer, though. You know, and so do I think it's automatic? No. Do I think he's got a good chance? Yes. I mean, he's very well respected. There's no question about that. And no one questions his ability to coach. And the question, I think, is going to be people management. And 
Um, you know, I, I think you look at it and it's, it's right there for everybody. I mean, if you want to talk about why things went down this way, and I'm not saying that the owner made the right decision, but, you know, I think the owner knew there was discord between the, the general manager and the head coach. And so then his next move was, okay, like, well, let me look at, you know, their departments and what's going on in their departments. And the general manager, Chris Greer, had been there for 22 years and there were no issues in the scouting department. And then, you know, you look at the coaching staff and three offensive coordinators in three years, three offensive line coaches in three years, two defensive coordinators in three years, two different play callers in 2021 alone. Um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, it's, you look at it, you see, like, how hard he's been to work for. And, you know, again, I'm not saying it's right to connect, like, an, like an issue where, you know, like the coaching and the, the, the coach and the GM aren't on the same page and haven't communicated well. Um, but like, if you want to sort of dig into it, it's easy to look and see where you know the owner would arrive at the conclusion that it was the GM and not the co- that it was the coach and not the GM. And so that's what I think you know Flo's got to an answer for. And look, like again, like I don't think anybody doubt. I don't think anybody questions you know whether or not the guy can coach. He can definitely coach. Um, you know, I think it's going to be the people management part of it that's going to be you know, what he's going to have to answer for and, you know, and confront on his own. And then, you know, I think once you get past that, it's going to be, do you have a coherent offensive philosophy that you can give us? Um, because, you know, obviously he's cycled through the different coordinators. And, you know, if you're looking at a job like Chicago, you know, the development of that young quarterback is so important. You, know, you can't have him going through that over the next few years. You, not, you need to give him some stability on that side of the ball. Yeah, you know, listen, it's 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 interesting. There's a college basketball coach, I can tell you off air, I, I prefer not to on air, who, you know, he was at a different spot in his first three years, all new staff. He still has a, a staff cycle. And, you know, his team, I think this year is a little up, a little, little all over the place. And, you know, if again, it's kind of the same thing, really hard to work for. Just wears people out. And it, everybody will say, like, he's a really good coach. He does. And yeah. his teams have, have been good. But. There is a point of people management, and there's another aspect well, to it. And here's the other thing, too, Doug. I mean, I, if you're talking about, like, and there are a lot of great football coaches that are hard to work for, right? Bill Belichick's hard to work for. Nick yeah. Saban's hard to work for. If, like, you're in one of those places and you look up and you see all these guys, how many millionaires have the Patriots made over the years? You know what I mean? Like, so if you're in one of these places, like Alabama or New England, and the coach is really hard to work for, but then you look at the final result and you see the trophies and you see how many millionaires those places have made, it's really easy to convince yourself, well, you know, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but I can work my way through it. When those results aren't there, things get uncomfortable, and then you start losing. I mean, it's very easy for people to then say, why the hell am I doing this, you know? And so, like, it's, I just think it's hard to sell people on working in, those, in that sort of environment now than it used to be. And, um, and yeah, I think that's what gets a lot of these Patriot guys, you know, is they go other places they are difficult to work for and they don't have the trophy case to point at the same way that Bill does. You know, everybody's talking about the, uh, the end of the game timeout, which I think is, is a kind of a, a nonsense discussion uh, in terms of did, did the Raiders change? They were going to run, run the football regardless. Yeah. But, but Brandon Staley going for it, you know, at his own, what was it, 18, 19 yard line, the first half on fourth and two. I get yeah. we've trended, we've trended where going for it on fourth down and not kicking field goals and going for two, but that feels a little extreme 
one year into a guy who is kind of one of these bright, young, shining new stars. What's the reaction around the league from that sort of performance at the end of the season? Yeah, I'm with you. I think I actually don't think there was any issue with the timeout at the end of the game at all. Like, if you really look at it, and yeah. I don't think people looked at it close enough. I, there were five seconds left in the play clock, so like, and the Raiders were in a run formation. The Raiders were in a shotgun run formation. The Raiders weren't kneeling there, and so you know, like, yeah, maybe the Raiders were planning on letting the clock run out, but if they had picked up ten or fifteen yards, you don't think they would have sent the kicker out there, especially when it like meant like avoiding going to Arrowhead the next week. They absolutely would have, you know. And I think in Brandon's situation, he's looking at it and sees the play clock running down. And, you know, he's saying to myself, I've got the wrong personnel out there. Right. So there's a chance that that happens. So I don't have any issue. I don't think there's – I think what he did was logical. Like, I don't Correct. have any issue at all with that. You, you, you and um, I agree there. The other one, there's no question. And, look, he's done these sorts of things all year. And I think, the, you know, one thing about Brandon is I think he knows the score with them, right? Like, so, like, he got a lot, he's gotten a lot of credit for his aggression over the course of the year. Um, and he always say, he'll tell you, he's like, I don't view those as gambles. I view them as advantage situations. Can I create an advantage for the team? Um, you know, and they do a lot of research into that. So um, I, I'm with you. Like, I would not have done that. Like, and I don't think, and I think it was like sort of an unnecessary, to me it was an unnecessary gamble that could create a ton of momentum for the other team. And, you know, like, that's the way I see it. But, you know, I think the way he sees it is he was trying to create an advantage for his team, and he showed confidence in both his offense to convert and his defense to clean up the mess after um, if it didn't work. And so it's a different way of thinking. And, again, like I think he deserves criticism for it, scrutiny and everything else. Um, But he has at least been consistent in making those sorts of calls over the course of the year. Albert, great stuff. Awesome regular season. We expect better performance out of you in the postseason. I'm kidding, of course. (laughs) We'll, We'll talk to you very soon. Yeah, I'll try to step up. Thanks, Dad. Step up your game, Albert Breer, senior NFL reporter, the MMQB. Be sure to catch live editions of the Doug Gottlieb Show weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Doug Gottlieb Show. Fox Sports Radio. Kind of like talking to guys. We just, hey, uh, Jay Stu. I don't know if you or Lee Mayock, uh, whoever arranged the guest today, really good, really good. Well, we had Albert Breer, Daniel Jeremiah. Who was our Who was our third guest? Who's and uh, third Jeff guest? Schwartz. And that, that's Jeff Schwartz. That's definitely Lee Mayock. So shout out to Lee. Yeah, shout out to Lee. Lee Mayock books our show. Um, she does a great job. She's also um, she like she's a Raider fan. I'm a Charger fan. I sent her a, te- a very nice congratulatory text on Monday. Right, we got. We got uh, Dave Coelho, of course, who's a booker for for Cowherd, um, who's a Raider fan. I didn't send him any nice texts because he's just not that nice a human being. I'm kidding, of course. Anyway, um, she's very she was very gracious in victory. I would I'm not sure I would be as gracious, and most Raider fans aren't as gracious. But she was very gracious. Good job, Daily. I just I feel radio fulfilled when I get three very different perspectives. Albert Beer, who covers. Everything going on in the league. Jeff Schwartz, who covers it, but also, you know, does some gambling stuff and is a former player. And then DJ, who is a college player and an analyst and has a has a ton of different connections, being a former scout. Um, there, there's there's a couple of different things that in sports radio you got to be careful to not take the bait. 
right? And you'll hear, uh, I've always been told it's, it's called survey radio, right? Should you have gone for it on fourth down? Call in 877 on Fox. Oh, hey, caller, what's your name? What, you know, that's survey radio. Try and stay away from it. Um, summer months, look, it can get tricky. You know, you're like, nobody talks about baseball on national radio. Tom Brady's not leaving anywhere. Aaron Rodgers is hiking Machu Picchu. NBA's over. Questions. How good would LeBron be in the 80s? How good would the guys in the 80s be in 2022? Which is essentially what Steph Curry did. Here's Steph did a segment of GQ's Actually Me and had this exchange. I got to ask, fully healthy, do you believe the Warriors with KD could have beat the 96 Bulls in a seven-game finals? Absolutely. Obviously, we will never know, but you put us on paper with them, I like our chances. I'd say dubs in six, too. Okay, so look, it's a question asked to him from GQ's some little deal they got. Let's not act like it was uh, he took the mic, you know, on TNT's Inside the NBA and said, he's a three-time champion. Whoever thought, you know, my team that won the championship, my organization and a different form of that team won 73 games, we would lose to anybody. Those guys don't think you can lose to anybody. You know, Steph Curry has the record for being the league's greatest three-point shooter ever. Th- there could be an argument, but if you ask Larry Bird, and if you asked him in his heart of hearts, Larry Bird, or you ask Chris Mullen, you ask any of these other great shooters, hey, if you got to get take the volume of threes, what well, they'd all say, maybe they wouldn't say it on TV or on a GQ segment, they'd all say, yeah, I would be just as good, if not better. You're not going to get to be that great unless you believe you're that great. So I guess my question is, do I take the bait and actually break down? Take the bait or don't take no, the bait? No, do not take the bait. Buyer? Take the bait, Doug. Take oh. the bait. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay Stu, rubber, the, you're the rubber match or whatever. You're the deciding factor. I mean, I, I kind of feel compelled to give you some context here, right? As, as you know, my morning, my process starts with watching the debate shows and more to see how the producers stack their shows, not necessarily to hear their opinions, but stack just, and rack yeah, just to see what producers around the country are doing, right? And when I saw this done on the first show that I watched this morning, I'm like, there's no way we're doing this. This is, this is like a, a, a layup July 5th topic and then each show after that i'm watching did the exact same topic they they all took the bait so i guess my point is do the listeners must want to hear this we i don't necessarily want to do it but i think the listeners maybe want us to do it i mean the truth is there's no answer here right <laughs> right like i mean the, the truth is there's no there's no answer there's no right answer or right no, or no wrong answer. answer there's just no answer which, which bulls team are we talking about the 72 win bulls team yeah they, they I think won the, six titles yeah and they had they had very different like i would tell you i personally think that you know that that first one, are we talking the first three championships or the second three? It was the 96 team. So what is that, Dan? Is that the, the, the last team of the first yes. trilogy well, or the yes. first team of the second? 96 was the first team of the second, second trilogy. First of the second, yes. I mean, because what you have to understand is here's how the sport would change. Dennis Rodman would become your center, right? 
And so Tony Kukoc would become a start. Like in the, that's how the, when, when the Warriors go small, that's what the Bulls would do. But we're also like, oh, what rules are we playing under? Are we going to the 90s rules where you could hand check? Because that changes staff dramatically. You know? Remember, you had power forwards on the floor. Again, that's, that's what I'm saying about was Horace Grant or Dennis Rodman who were power, quote, power forwards. Now those guys would be centers. And you'd have the, the one thing about the Bulls were they, they were using length defensively and switching things defensively before it was truly in vogue. Um, obviously there's a lot more firepower you with, with, you got Kevin Durant, you got Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. That's a lot of firepower. That's a lot of firepower. If you know, like how are you, you're matching that. If you're the bulls with what Ku coach Jordan and Pippen. Ooh, that's hard. That, 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 that's hard. Um, you know that now that team was that B.J. Armstrong? Was that was Steve Kerr wasn't all three years? What was he buyer? I don't think he was. No, and I think Armstrong was in the first, uh, it the was, first it was, three. It was the first. Uh, John Paxson was, I thought, the first three. Maybe I thought they were both on, there. They're both. They were both. I yeah. think in the in the second or third one. Because wasn't there the whole point of when B.J. Armstrong left, and then he came back? Or did he go to Charlotte? He did go to Charlotte. And, uh, you know, had a good game against the Bulls. And then the next time they played, like, the Bulls just, you know, poured it on him. Yes, Ramos. I guess you could say that, I mean, the better defensive team would probably be the Bulls, correct? I mean, Jordan would probably lock down Steph Curry. Pippen would probably lock down Durant. Pretty, you know, play very, very good defense. I assume Clay Thompson but, but, would be, but, but, would be again, the odd I, person I, out. I, I well, no, because you would have had Ron Harper, who was an okay. excellent defense. Who was an excellent. People forget Ron Harper was a scorer. Then he tore his knee with the Cavs, and then he became one of these Swiss Army knife guys. Um, I mean, that was a that was a, a team though that was kind of ahead of the curve in terms of their ability to play small. You had you you would have had Ron Harper, Tony Kukoc, Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. That would have been their small ball lineup. And no, Rodman was not the passer of Draymond Green, but a, a better defense, equal or better defensive player at the same way that he could have guarded every position and an incredible rebounder. Um, and if possible, a worse offensive player in terms of scoring. Um, Harper was fine. You know, Pip, you know, and the the other part is, and people like to point out Jordan didn't shoot the three ne- with nearly the volume that year. Jordan actually shot 43%. But the bigger thing is like, again, are we playing old NBA or new NBA hand check rules? Because Ramos is like, well, you'd shut him down. Okay, but it's a com- like the sport is totally changed in that period of time. Totally changed. So that's why it's impossible. Uh, who I would pick the Bulls. Because I feel like the Bulls were so good defensively. But again, I don't know how good defensively they are if you, you know, if you change dramatically how their lineup works. So, yes, Pippen would guard Kevin Durant. But again, how do people play basketball now? You would have you would have tried to force Steve Kerr into a switch and Steve Kerr would have no chance against any of those guys. What did you feel a little better, though? I know it was just a kind of a generic answer to the question, but. 
maybe if Curry would have said, like, I really feel we would win, it would be really close or it'd be very tough. He didn't really say that. He kind of seemed to be like it's a foregone conclusion that it was just an easy win for the Warriors. Because it's not a real it's not a real discussion thing. Okay. Question. He, that, that's that was my takeaway. Mm-hmm. Jay Stu, do you have the same takeaway where it wasn't it wasn't I, I also think that asking somebody to answer some question seriously when it's a complete hypothetical, what is the point of the serious discussion? So him by him not answering it seriously per se kind of pushes it to the side and moves on to another, something else. I think so. I think so. I got to ask, fully healthy, do you believe the Warriors with KD could have beat the 96 Bulls in a seven-game finals? Absolutely. Obviously, we will never know, but you put us on paper with them, I like our chances. Um, okay. Doug Gottlieb show here on Fox Sports Radio. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get back to Bayer uh, in a second. I want to play for you something. Um, because in, in addition to comparing teams, right, we got compared teams to different eras. Now we're comparing teams from different sports. Here's Carmelo Anthony comparing LeBron and Carmelo's Lakers team to the Bucks last year. Just from the standpoint of, you know, starting off slow and having new guys on a, on a, on a, on a team, new system, uh, guys trying to figure it out, guys trying to figure out how to play with, you know, Le- LeBron and AD and then now incorporating the Russ and, and just everybody just, you know, figuring out what their role is. And what made it what made it beautiful for the Bucks was that it was once it came together, it came together. And, and you've seen you've seen what happened with that. Yes, uh, they played a soft schedule after their bye week. They squeaked out one on the road against Washington. They uh, beat a team that had beaten them twice with the help of a Jared Cook fumble in New Orleans. They had the lead and hang on, hung on for dear life against Green Bay. And, oh, wait, that's me getting too far into the weeds, right? What Carmelo's saying is like, look, if we're honest, this team was just put together. We're going to get better. And we still don't have Anthony Davis. That's fine. I agree with that. I think there is potential there. But I'd also point out to you, everybody is missing guys. Everybody's going to reintegrate guys, just like the Warriors bringing back Clay At some point, Jamal Murray for, for Denver, right? I mean, you kind of go through the league, and all of these teams have some questions. And there's that fundamental flaw of, one, they're older guys. Somebody else is going to break down. Plus, Anthony Davis always gets hurt. And what do you do with Russell Westbrook? But I understand he's not talking about, well, Russell is Anthony, Antonio Brown and Brady is LeBron James. And he's just like, look, if you look at those guys, it took him a while and then it clicked at the end of the season. That's what he's hopeful for. I think they're fundamentally flawed. That would be my pushback against it. 